In your universe, there's only one Spider-Man. But there's another universe. It looks and sounds like yours, but it's not. My name's Miles Morales. No, no, man. It's like, hey. Hey. No, more like, <clears throat> hey. 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 Hello hey. there, and welcome to Midweek Matinee, the worst podcast that is great that you've probably never listened to. Hey. Uh, I am your host <laughs> this week, Brett Beck, and alongside me, is uh mr chris figs here we don't have blake this week because he yes. is out with some family stuff wish him the best on all that but we took this opportunity me and chris to come yep. together and talk about a movie that we know blake would not really be interested in talking about <laughs> no no offense to him it's just we've kind of talked about this movie in other movies yeah like that we've discussed and have been mentioning that we eventually wanted to get around to it, but we wanted to make sure that it was something that Blake was good with. So we took this opportunity to come in and talk about Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Chris, how you doing? Uh, I'm doing pretty well. How are you doing, Brett? I've been off of work yes. all week. That will continue. So I was oh, I did one of those strategic vacations Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. where we, get, we got Christmas Day off and half of Christmas <clears throat> Eve off. Okay. So it's going to be like a 10 day vacation before i go back it's gonna be just <laughs> absolutely great i mean that's awesome that is exactly awesome and there's no time you know it's funny whenever you came and like hey let's shift the thing over and let's kind of do a bonus buffer episode so that blake can still come into the 12 angry men episode yes and you had mentioned spider-verse and i was already thinking of watching spider-verse at some point in time during this week because <laughs> i've just been looking down at it and being like i'm gonna watch that whenever i have time to myself yeah and I was like, okay, yeah, this this week will be a good time for that because I'll be at home. So here we are. You've you've made the the dream happen. No, absolutely. It's like I said to you privately. Um, I didn't want to hear any of Blake's bullshit on this movie. <laughs> so <laughs> Blake can take offense to that if he wants. But it's like I said privately and then put out open in the air. Blake, <laughs> <laughs> listen. Blake decided that he was going to say that I went on another vacation during your um, <laughs> Funny People episode, even though I was the first one of us to watch Funny People. Uh, one of you, you just screwed me over that night, so like we couldn't do it. <laughs> yeah. So I have to, I, I have to give Blake a little shit, but that's true. But that led to a great episode with Whitney. So it did. No, I, had, I had a good awesome. time with that. Yeah. All right, man. The upside of getting into this is that I, I know that even though I'm hosting, one of the yes. things I like whenever it's more me and you is that it, you're good. Guys, shut up. Fuck me. <laughs> Guys, shut the fuck up. Anyway, yes. one of the cool things about coming into this, even though I'm hosting, is that whenever me and you are doing an episode together... Mm. Uh, you know, we'll find ourselves a little more getting to this thing of like we did with into the uh, or the end of the tour, where it's m 
about the movie and there's plenty about this movie but i think that this movie also has a lot of stuff about just things that it taps into because i think that this movie does such a good job at building an emotional response with any viewer and i think a lot of that comes to just general relatability to characters and situations at hand and when you have so many spider-men involved you have a lot of different ways to relate to a singular idea of a character which is spider-man is an idea just as much as he's the individual person behind the mask. Yeah. But um, so that's cool. And I like that we can talk about everything that this movie has while still bringing in kind of what it is about the movie that is so special because I feel mm-hmm. like every time I watch this movie, I'm just, I'm pulled in and I oh, can't yeah. break away from it. And scenes that don't seem like they're that complex mm-hmm. have much more of a, a response from me internally than I would expect i remember that was like a big thing about the first time i watched the movie that i was surprised that something that they're doing even if it's just simple is just tapping into people so that's going to be really fun to get into uh but the weird part of this movie is that it's probably got one of the biggest cast of any spider-man specific movie and the only reason i say that is that the two Marvel Cinematic Universe movies of Spider-Man also try and pull a bunch of stuff in from the MCU at large. Sure. And that's not a problem so much as it's just that the movies that came before it normally had a smaller cast by base of just being specifically about Spider-Man. Yeah. And only yeah. having a single Spider-Man. I mean, arguably the two worst... Jesus, fuck. The two worst Spider-Man movies are the ones with big villain casts the biggest cast yeah Yeah. spider-man 3 and uh amazing spider-man 2 spider-man 3 is making a comeback on twitter though so i guess maybe it's not the it's still the worst of those three but yeah i actually would say that across the board i think most people view amazing spider-man 2 as like the bottom point of the series oh i mean amazing spider-man 2 regardless of if it's spider-man or not is just a bad movie (laughs) It really is. It's a bad movie with some interesting things. Right. Like, at, a, at a certain point, watching Spider-Man swing is cool. Yeah. You know? So it's really hard to like not have a good... It's really hard to not have good scenes in a Spider-Man movie because if as long as you don't make Spider-Man look like an idiot when he's swinging... You, you kind of got it. Yeah. That's... <laughs> one thing that you bring up as we're kind of getting into the cast of this movie as a whole is that it's interesting that both of the Spider-Man movie uh, movies that are viewed as kind of like the worst examples are the ones that went out of their way to get caught up in having too many villains at once. Whereas it's interesting to me that this movie has just as many, if not even actually, if you want to say more villains than the normal live action Spider-Man movie but the way that it approaches them and introduces them, I think, is what's so different. I think the reason that both Spider-Man 3 and Spider-Man, or Amazing Spider-Man 2, have issues is because of the way they try to introduce their villains, where it's like everyone has to be set up, and then yeah. they have to get their own individual payoff. Whereas I like that in this movie, you get individual bad guys, but you don't have to worry about all of them capitalizing because there is still the one major bad guy and then the bad guy that's the crux of kind of the moral dilemma behind the movie with Aaron uh, being the prowler. So I think think that that works out pretty well. Definitely. The thing with this movie is Kingpin is the bad guy, whereas everyone else, even even including Prowler, 
is is just a, a henchman mm. you know this is almost one of the, yeah in the way the movie comes off to me where you know in like an anime where you can tell who the main characters are because they're the only ones dressed differently you know oh, what i mean yeah this yeah, yeah. is kind of the same thing where they have a bunch <laughs> of goons but then tombstones there and scorpions there and doc ox there and prowlers there but they're not a villain Whereas, like, Spider-Man 3, for example, is Sandman the Hobgoblin, I think that's what we're calling Harry at that point. And sure. then um, Venom. And the problem is the movie wants to have three villains instead of Venom being the villain and Hobgoblin and Sandman being side characters. It wants to have its cake and eat it, too, where this one doesn't do that. It's just, okay, here's here's cameos from from guys, you know? But Kingpin is the meat and potatoes, literally. That guy's fucking gigantic <laughs> of this movie. Yeah, you know, it's it's hard to talk about this without referencing other Spider-Man media outside of the comics because I think that the comics have always done a good job of handling all these things. Right. Partially by nature of what they are, they're short stories that continue to build across a number of releases. Whereas these are trying to cram more in, but in a way that's a little different. But um, <clears throat> kind of what you just talked about makes me think of Spider-Man 2018. Which, while I do lament the way they chose to use the bad guys, the Sinister Six, in terms of boss fights, I wish that they would have all get, been given their own boss fights. Yeah, um, I, I like the idea that in that game, it's exactly what you talk about. You have the central antagonist, who is Doc Ock, and then you have the rest of them, which are just really pawns underneath him. They are they're more than just your typical street thug, but at the end of the day, their goal is not to be the primary villain. Their goal is to assist the primary villain. Right, exactly. And that that's what's excellent about this. While we're kind of juxtaposing the fact that we have multiple villains set up in this, sure. I think that the way that you kind of mirror that is that that's the same way that you justify being able to have so many Spider-Men in one movie, is that the Spider-Man for this movie in particular is ultimately Miles. That's who we're following. right. And even though it's almost like the, the the way the movie is set up is to actually kind of flip the idea on its head because at the beginning of the movie, we're introduced to the Spider-Man, the one and only Spider-Man. And then quickly the movie's like, well, there can be more than one Spider-Man. And we go down this road. It starts off being that Miles is going through and he is assisting Peter B. Parker's Spider-Man. Yeah. Where And then all of the other spider people that we're introduced to here, like Spider-Gwen and Spider-Pig and uh, <laughs> the all the other ones, uh, Noir Spider-Man. And then whenever you're doing that, they're all kind of assisting what seems to be the figurehead that is Peter B. Parker. But then as the movie kind of goes along, we actually see that shift to what you should be once we have that moment, you know, that break breakout moment that's so great in this movie. Then we have the movie become, this is Miles' Spider-Man story and everyone else is assisting Miles. And right. I love that you actually get to see that progression and then that flip so that it ends up mirroring at the end of the story the setup for the villains. Because the villains are set up from the get-go. We have the big bad who is Fisk, and then we have, like you said, his his henchmen, his assistants. Yeah. And then we end up where it doesn't make them less interesting of people, but it, it, it helps the story not be too convoluted and too saturated by trying to focus on giving too much information about too many people so that you make all of them feel like equal villains, which is just a, always a bad idea. <laughs> yeah, and I think one of the things that this movie, Blake, this is for you, so you understand. This movie specifically benefits from animation 
because in a live action movie, I think you have to have a scene where you explain why someone looks like Frankenstein, right? Whereas in this movie, you can kind of go, you can look at Tombstone and be like, he just he could just be any henchman, and then someone calls his name and you go, oh, that's Tombstone. Okay, cool. So even if you don't know Spider-Man and his villains and who Tombstone is, that you don't need to know, you know? Yeah, Whereas no, I think that's if you, fair. If you do know oh that's tombstone that's scorpion prowler doc Ock, all that stuff then that helps it's one of those like the the joke they make in kids movies for the parents to laugh too you know it's it, to me it feels like that except for hardcore spider-man fans right yeah think, it's something that works regardless right exactly you don't need to be because it's animated tombstone being gray and looking the way he does doesn't necessarily stand out because wilson fisk is a refrigerator with a face in the middle. Mm-hmm. He's Mr. House from Fallout New Vegas. But, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so you don't question it, but then if you look at it and you're like, that's Tombstone, I got that. I think that's I what think, I think is really cool about it, the animation. Outside I think of you're right because you have like, and this is one of the things I really appreciate about this. There is this feeling, at least from filmmakers, I would actually love to see someone do it, but you do have that conundrum of how do you make it work in a way that doesn't disconnect the viewer of making Green Goblin in this movie, this gigantic, big goblin. That's awesome. And it feels decidedly different than any other film version of Green Goblin that we've ever gotten or hobgoblin if you want to kind of loop them together yeah but when what ends up happening is that you see him and like you said there's no disconnect because it's already a world full of odd proportioned people you know you have jefferson davis who is very big and towering and then you have his mother who's much smaller and you get over these things because the the world sets up that this is like the expectation so when you see like you say tombstone or when you see uh green goblin you're not weird but the moment you try and go into a live action movie and be like well what if we made green goblin into a giant green goblin (laughs) people are gonna be like i don't know that's gonna feel weird and i would love to see a world in which we get to see that happen and it doesn't disconnect you but i think that because when we see live action that we expect it to be some semblance of real uh and what we perceive as real ends up making you want to go towards more of a humanoid look and more right. of a grounded bit reason as to why. Cause it's like, well, how is he the green goblin? And even though the amazing Spider-Man two did a pretty bad job of it, that's probably about the most that you could do. I feel like reasonably in live action with a green goblin kind of person is have it be that they do get physical deformities, but they still have to retain a mostly human look. Yeah. But I then mean, you have the Raimi version where he's just, mentally he's affected but physically he just gives off all his green goblin traits by having a suit (laughs) well yeah and i think the other thing with and the the other and it's the reality of movie making which i think to disney's benefit we may end up seeing less of but doing green goblin this way would just be far too expensive for them to ever do it you know which Mm. is another benefit of this and it's just another reality of this movie being so good because it's not held to the same i guess standard might be the word i'm looking for there sure well i I think it also makes sense as to how you can have all these disparate animation styles come together in a single film 
and still work. Whereas <clears throat> I'd be really curious to see, and this would be something I would love to see someone attempt. Though I feel like it's a little risky, you know, if we are moving towards a future where the Marvel movies are going to introduce the idea of a multiverse, then how do you make the multiverses feel different? Do you just have it be everybody's pulling in and you just know who they are? Or do you do like this movie does where noir Spider-Man is black and white, even though he's in a world full of color and uh-huh. Spider-Pig is clearly more round and oddly proportioned and got has like heavier lines because that's what his universe or dimension mm-hmm. rather looks like. And then you have Penny Parker who looks like an anime character in a movie with no proportions that are similar. And yet your mind never stops to think that looks weird. Right. But it gives every dimension a distinct feel that I'm not quite sure that you could get out of a live action. I'm not going to say it's impossible. I just, I want to see how someone would approach that if they ever were going to. I genuinely don't think you could. And that, that's interesting. It'll kind of take us away from the movie a little bit so we can veer back. But this movie, watching it specifically, made me want a live-action Spider-Verse so much less. You know? Because, because it I, feels like we've already have the perfect rendition of it. Every time yeah, I you, watch this you movie... You couldn't do it better than this. You know? There's no yeah. way. If I, I'm being honest, this is going to sound crazy. I enjoy all the Spider-Man movie. I think they're all good. But the moment I saw this movie... I was ready for them to never make another live action Spider-Man in my life. <laughs> I'm I'm glad that they're going to keep doing this and keep it separate cuz I like I like the live action Spider-Man movies. I like Tom Holland, I like Tobey Maguire. Andrew Garfield is an actor. Um <laughs> <laughs> but if you haven't yet, go check out our amazing Spider-Man 1 <laughs> episode. Yes. Yeah, I don't know. This just to me is just the perfect. It's the best Spider-Man movie by a mile. And I'll give Blake his credit. He would say Spider-Man 2. I would disagree with him. Whatever. But this one is just it's everything you want to see in a Spider-Man movie. And it's the things that they couldn't do in real life. They just couldn't do any of it. Yeah. Yeah, it cuts the limitation and lets you really dream and be like, what if you took a comic book and just set it in motion and put a camera on it? Yeah, and the thing is, and maybe this is more about the Disney way of making their movies, is their Spider-Verse is just going to be for the benefit of Tom Holland's character, which is fine because this movie, in a lot of ways, all the Spider-Men are just there for Miles' character, right? (laughs) I think I would say it's for Miles's world, but I mean, yeah, in the long run, it's it's Miles as a standalone and Miles's world because the stakes, at least as we're led to believe here, ah, that's not well, completely true. Because I mean, you know, if they stay in the if they stay in that universe, all of those spider people are also going to die. You know, they're basically just going to cease to yeah, exist as their. What I mean is like. What I what I think realistically is going to happen if they do a live action Spider Man movie is it's going to surround the fact that one of the other Spider Men is going to take Tom Holland's place and be the one who goes to jail and no there's multiple Spider Man and this is why I'm here that's going to be the whole movie whereas in this one Peter B Parker is his teacher Gwen is his love interest you know Spider Ham is comic relief which i guess doesn't have anything to do with miles's character he's just there to be funny and noir noir i would say the same thing but like even penny parker her utility is teaching miles mechanics right like or at least being the mechanic guy so they're there to cover miles's um 
lack of skills as a beginning Spider-Man. Sure. Right? And not and then Peter B. Parker is the mentor character. So I'm yeah. I just mean like they're all there as a function to help Miles. Well, I think a good way to kind of word this is that your point, I think, overall is that by the time that they try to introduce the idea of a Spider-Verse into the live action, it won't be an origin story mixed with it. So I think that this one helps that it's an origin story that you're not tired of seeing, but it also gets to be this. It makes sense for these people to come in and be there to assist in his lack of experience. Now, that doesn't mean that you can also look at this and say that the live action one won't pull all of these people in and do that. Where it's like, oh, they could all still be like, well, we've been doing it longer in our own respective worlds than you have, and we're here to try and help you with that. But I think the hit of it being an origin story about finding yourself and kind of I think Spider-Man's always meant to be that coupling of like an origin story. I should say origin story, but a coupling of like a coming of age story mixed with uh, becoming a superhero story. It's like, you know, just as you're fumbling through trying to go into adulthood, you're fumbling with trying to go into being a superhero, which is just a metaphor for adulthood. Cause it's like you get more responsibility and you have to actually be, think about what's going on and how your actions are going to affect other people and yourself and your ability to move forward. And that's what these movies are always about. And I think that's realistically what all Spider-Man stories are about. That's why we tend to find that Peter becomes Spider-Man in his teen years. Mm-hmm. Even if you can continue on, it's just, that's still what it's about is it's kind of like making your way through the world as you grow up. So it's just, it's naturally different. And I'm glad that this movie gave us that with miles when they could have skipped over it. But I think despite the fact that so many people are tired of origin stories, it felt necessary for this character. I think that everyone was just tired of seeing Peter Parker's origin stories. Right. And I think that's why even this movie, like flash, you know, as it does the comic book introductions, it just flashes through all that. It's like, I did this, this, that thing. (laughs) And then this thing. Yeah. I really love, um, original Peter Parker's is his, his one of that. That one killed me. I also love that they had it to where it was Mary Jane who was hanging upside down from the fire escape. Yes, that was good. <laughs> Which also led me to believe because, you know, that's clearly not what happened. And we saw that. But then when they introduced Peter B. Parker, we see the kiss scene from the first Spider-Man movie, but from the actual perspective. And so it's like you can't quite peg the the Spider-Man that we have so far to a single Dimension. It's almost like they're splitting it up across everyone. Yeah, it almost makes you wonder if uh, Peter B. Parker is just like a, it's like a uh, Toby McGuire diss. <laughs> 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 like, this is this is your Peter Parker. This is what we we allowed to happen to you. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. Who knows? Um. So I guess as we keep going on now. Um, yeah. We can kind of go into the beginning of this movie, which is clearly just about what the changes are that set up, as all these movies tend to do. It's about the world and introducing you to what Peter normally, in this case, Miles, is going through completely devoid of powers and giving you an idea of his. And one thing I like about this movie is it kind of twists everything that you normally see where it's like, oh, you see Peter go to a school that he's been going to and you see his normal run-of-the-mill life where this movie starts off immediately hitting with seeing Miles 
uprooted from the school where he's loved and you see that as he's walking through the streets and everyone's like we miss you miles and he just feels like he's in his element to mm-hmm. suddenly he's in this new school <laughs> and he's out of his element and i like that a lot of this movie is about taking what they've done in spider-man films before and finding a way to either flip that on its head or completely subvert it and that was a good way i think to start with that yep i agree I think it um, it really shows that like Miles Miles is one of those people who needs who needs to be confident in his element, which is kind of a theme of the entire movie is Miles just not being confident, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so him basically going to the new school is the same as him having to learn how to be Spider Man. Yeah. Well, and everything else too, like you know when he he has all these things like before the Spider-Man thing even comes into play, which again, you know, we say it's all about a metaphor, but I think it's more about the expectations of growing up thing. Like, you know, you see that and you're seeing him be pushed where he's trying to fail himself on purpose. Mm -hmm. So with the teacher, by the way, yeah, it's a great scene and everything that's going on around it kind of builds this thing up to where I like that the real underlying theme of the movie is that great expectations that they set up in that like first 15 minutes where at the cap of it all i even like that at the end it's like they bring it back to where he's written that and he's confident in what he's doing there and he finds himself in his element but that's what a lot of it is is that when you're growing up there's a lot of expectation on you from the world from your teachers from adults all around from even sometimes your friends about what you're going to do and it's kind of paralyzing. And a lot of this movie, I think, hits because you just see a teen kid who, when the first day he goes to sit down and write his great expectations paper, what does he do? He completely skirts it and goes, visits his uncle, who he feels yeah. at home with and comfortable with, because that's the only person in his life who's not being that pushing factor. You know, his, his parents and the teachers are all pushing him to do something greater, even though he doesn't necessarily know if that's who he is or what he wants to do. But Aaron's the only person who kind of sits back and just allows him the room to be who he wants to be and still be growing. And that's why you'll be moving into that scene where him and Aaron go into the subway tunnel and he goes to do the spray painting is that's a great scene. Cause it's just mm-hmm. Aaron sitting back and just supporting what he wants to do in complete juxtaposition to what everyone else in his life seems to be doing at that time. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree with everything you're saying. I think that the, that's one of the really best things about the beginning of the movie is just showing, showing how much miles is, I guess almost scared of his success in a way. Maybe I don't know. Yeah. Uh, I think, uh, I know that a lot of people have this when you feel like you come from something and you feel like you're getting an opportunity to do more and you have like imposter syndrome. Right. Cause I think that it, it's interesting. And I don't even know if I'd say that, I guess it's kind of looped into the movie of like, he feels like he's out of his element and maybe he isn't that smart, but at the same time, it's like, he's aware of how smart he is. Like that teacher says, like you had to know the answers to, to be able to select the wrong ones. Yeah. And so clearly he is smart enough, but I still feel like it's this thing of like, he comes from somewhere else and he doesn't feel like this new life, even if it's not necessarily a step up, he just doesn't feel like whatever this movie is, is necessarily what's for him. So maybe it's not necessarily that it's imposter syndrome, but it's, 
I, I definitely get that feeling of the movie of just it's it's like I mean, really, it's what the movie's doing. And I thankfully never had to do it, but it, it'd be like going to high school for the first three years at one place and then suddenly have to finish it out at a completely other place. It's like, what what is this? What do I want to do here? You know, it's like mm-hmm. working one place forever, thinking it's going to be your career, and then suddenly you're at another place. <laughs> it's Changes like that are scary, and I think it's the kind of thing that leads general people to be like, you know, I don't know what I want to do and I think I want to play it safe and the thing I want to do may not make me successful, but at the same time, it's the only thing I want to do. Like the, that pull you kind of see from him of wanting to paint and do all these things, but he's being dissuaded from that in a way, like not mm-hmm. completely. It's not like his dad is being <clears throat> like, don't do it, but he's not necessarily supporting it in the same way either. Well, I think, it's one of those typical things with a lot of parents who maybe don't understand what their kids are doing where he doesn't necessarily even believe that it's possible to make a life painting, you know? So that's, it's definitely could just be one of those things where the dad's like, I want you to do the typical thing. And, you know, Aaron, while being a bad influence in his private life, like outwardly, Aaron understands like okay you can you can do what you need to do as long as you you can do what you want to do I apologize as long as you you uh have a good head on your shoulders and you're doing things right but the thing I think is Aaron is really a good balance of the slacker and the I guess um, responsible parent because Aaron does this whole thing where he'll be like oh you know you got to go to school because of all the girls there all those girls are smart you know to me i took that as like aaron kind of trying to push miles to go to school but but not in the way of like you need to go to school and study so you can go to college and you become a doctor and you can pay for your parents retirement kind of thing that i think happens in a lot of i guess families in my area you know yeah i think that's definitely something up there where it's i mean that's still something in the south there's always that idea of you're going to grow up and take care of your parents because they took care of you you know that's just that's life i had this specific thing where just because of where i live it seems like a very like white value you know and not in a disparaging way that just like that's where i'm from is a lot of white families and that always seemed to be like with girls i dated or with friends i've had it's like you got to be successful to handle your parents. Whereas in my family where I'm Hispanic, it's a lot more Hispanic and Portuguese. My mom would be very upset if I didn't say that, but (laughs) (laughs) um, it's a lot more of like, just do what you can. You know, they always want you to go to school and that kind of thing. But it always felt like I was in a more of a position to kind of pursue what I felt was, more me than some of my friends were yeah okay that yeah i mean i I get what you mean to an extent uh i mean i had definitely had a little bit of that on myself which is a little different because i came from like a very low income family Mm. so there's all this thing of like you know my mom didn't go to college and she expected me to be her first kid to go to college because my brother dropped out of high school and he's older than me so i had a lot of pressure on me to be like you've got to be the first one to go and make something of yourself. And I found myself a lot like miles in that sense of being like, you know what I want to make of myself 
may not line up with what you want me to make of like you know may not right. line up with what you want to do like maybe what i want to do doesn't involve college at all mm-hmm. and i tried going to college for like a very little bit at a yeah. community college here and quit after like a single semester <laughs> and the yeah. only class i took i, I took I, I did two semesters i took one class uh one semester i did web design and uh recording studio and the next one i did um um american history and then took another year of recording class <laughs> and i just knew but there's that idea of where like a lot of where i think i connect with miles in this film is that feeling of like it's more of like the it's i won't say laid back but it's like you want to be creative and you want to be a creator and all these other things kind of just pull you from that and this movie does go towards showing that you can bring those two things together to a degree and i think that that is definitely true but it does seem like it's always a zero-sum game to like parents and kids of like we are parents we're adults and we have a better idea from just general living experience of what you've got to do to be successful and a lot of the times they just want you to be successful because they want you to be happy mm-hmm. and they think that their version of what they think will make you happy has to match yours like you you don't know what will make you happy just yet and that's not entirely false <laughs> you know i don't right. think anybody knows exactly what's going to make them happy at 16 17 however old miles is in this movie yeah but it just regardless that's part of the the pull on this it's funny though that you're talking about aaron and i think you're right to an extent like he's finding ways to try and give miles secondary motivation to go and do stuff right. but at the same time it just seems like some things that like i know a lot of people do where they don't have kids themselves or whatever and they just have this opportunity to be like i shouldn't even say opportunity it's a lot easier to be the laid back and cool kid, like a cool, uh, you know, uncle, family member, whatever you are, mm-hmm. if uh, you're not the actual parent because you're not constantly there, and you only see them in small windows. So it's easier to be supportive and whatnot because you kind of know that you don't have to be disciplined. Like you don't have to do the same thing because you already know they're getting it from somewhere else, typically, yeah. well, and. It's just different. So I, I like that this movie kind of a like. I don't know if it's necessarily that Aaron was trying to do that or if Aaron was just being normal Aaron in the sense of like, you know, you can do great things and do all this stuff and also be a cool kid. And, you know, he's like poking fun at Miles. Like, I knew we aren't related. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no nephew of mine's going to go out there not having any game. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, no, I, and I don't know. And not, as someone who isn't a parent, yeah, I would imagine that, especially with being an uncle and not having kids of your own, it's a lot of like, not that you don't want to see the kid do well, but you're also not nearly as concerned about his future as the parent is, you know? You're just concerned in a different way, probably. You know, right. you can be supportive. It's just that you know that you don't, at the end of the day, it's not necessarily the same connection, typically, in most For family sure. situations. Yeah, I mean, um, it's one of those things where like my brother if my brother ever asked me to watch his kids as the uncle it's going to be one of those things where like yeah we'll go see a movie whereas i'm not going to be sitting there like hey you need to do your homework or you have to go to bed unless it's i'm obviously you know what i'm trying to say though right like yeah you're not you get to be the breath of fun right and i get get to be the guy who they come over 
and I've got all the video games and their parents don't let them play video games. So they get to play Grand Theft Auto 17 on my Xbox eight, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Right. So I, I like I, how in this situation you're going to have like kids in like 2070. I was going to say, how old do I expect to be when my brother has kids in the next couple of years? Ah, <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> those uh, dang, those dang kids and their old Xboxes. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, you're right. I think it's that situation where typically if you're in that like role of being like the uncle or the kind of extra person that you typically get to go see as a family member, they're they're normally aware of what's going on in your life anyway. So I think that in this case, it's like Aaron knows that his parents are writing him about this school. Definitely his dad, because he knows how his dad is. So he's taking that opportunity to be like the countermeasure to what's going on because like I say, he doesn't have to, he knows that the other stuff's happening. So he already knows he's getting pushed and he's like, well, I can just be a little small dose of the antidote for a little bit, but still try and get him to where he needs to be. And that moves the story forward in a pretty interesting way because I I just wanted to make one, I asked one question while we were still kind of on the topic of it. Do you think that Jefferson knew that Aaron was prowler? You know, honestly, honestly, I don't know. I, I, I get the feeling not, and right. this is not really a disconnect of the movie, but the fact that the movie kind of doesn't allude to the fact that Jefferson is m- mindful of the fact that Miles is the Spider-Man he's talking to at the end. I feel like there's so much about Miles that we're introduced to as a character that this father should know to where the moment yeah. he sees that spider suit and everything else, it's kind of like what we talked about in our Miles Morales episode mm-hmm. for the PS5 game, but you have this thing where it's like, I feel like you would know. I feel yeah. like you should just know. Like you, you know your kid's an artist, and you know that he likes to do this thing, and suddenly you're seeing this Spider-Man. And there's a lot of signs, too. Like, you know, whenever he comes in through the window after witnessing <clears throat> Spider-Man getting hit and being unsure of what's going on, and then he immediately asks his dad, hey, you know, do you really hate Spider-Man? Yeah. And then uh, moments later, seeing on TV, Spider-Man's dead. Don't you think something would be up? You'd be like, man. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's one of the things where, again, not necessarily a big issue with this movie, but I I wish they expanded more into why Jefferson and Aaron had drifted apart. Mm -hmm. Because I think that's the thing that Spider-Man Miles Morales does really well is it, it explains that to you. So you get more of this sense of why they're so separated. Where in this game, or I'm sorry, in this movie, it, you don't really get a sense of like why Jefferson is mad at Aaron or why he doesn't want him around as much. Yeah, I think you still get this general idea of like one person's wanting it to be like you know honest, hard work and values, and that their values didn't quite line up. I mean, it also feels a little different because it doesn't feel like in comparison while we just happen to be talking about those two if you the listener have played the miles morales game it doesn't feel like in this situation aaron is completely out of miles life like it was there to where it was much more severe this just seems more like it's a thing of like hey we've drifted apart in the fact that like we used to be very close as brothers and now we see each other but you know where it what we had is gone like you know now he's just the part of the family that we see occasionally right and but you're right. The movie 
despite having a fairly long two-hour runtime, you know, I mean, all things considered, at some point you have to decide what's most important. And while it would have been nice to see, I guess at the at the the point of everything that's going on in this movie, I don't really know that it was pivotal to the story that they needed to tell. So no, it, wasn't, it, it would have been great extra building. And I think that that's one of the great things about moving. And this is a great time to throw this out. I think every time I watch this movie, I want a game that looks just like this. Oh my God. Yes. So badly because I just think that it gives you a lot of different style and personality to go with, but then you can do these same things and tell great stories. And what makes games so great is that you can have a main story and then you can have this off as just completely different side content that you can experience if you want to dig deeper. For sure. And I don't necessarily disagree with you. I just think the movie could have solved this issue if, when Jefferson finds Aaron after he gets shot, he had just gone, I knew this would happen. You yeah. Know? Like a and, small line to give you right. the idea that he, even if it, even if it's vague on whether he knew that Aaron was the prowler, if nothing else, it's like, Oh, I knew that Aaron was doing some yeah. unsavory things. It, it at least gives you a sense of like, this is why they grew apart, you know, because yeah. with, without it, it just seems like they're cold to each other for honestly, it almost seems like, Aaron's a little bit cooler than than Jefferson, and Jefferson doesn't like it in a lot of ways. You know, <laughs> just the way the movie portrays the two of them. Um, I don't think that this is why, but you know, regardless, if you just look at what happens as a cause of all this, right? I think that when you see the scene where Aaron is found by Jefferson, it directly leads to probably the most emotionally stirring moment oh, yeah. of the whole thing, where jefferson comes and visits miles in his room outside the door and miles has the stuff on his mouth so he can't talk and he just has this very one-sided but very touching like dialogue and you know i like to think that they didn't only create that scene with aaron and do all that so that they could have that moment but ultimately that's a more important scene as a whole than whether or not jefferson does or does not know exactly what's going on i think the movie leaves it open enough for you to infer but yeah i mean i still think to your point a single line would have been like something even Mm -hmm. if it was just to imply that regardless of what jefferson knew of exact nature he had this thing of like you know we grew again the, the implication of i grew apart from you because I knew this day would come and it would hurt that much worse if we were close. But you know, that's also one of those weird things of where humans will justify something like that. And then you follow it up with, Oh, it actually hurts worse now because we never had a chance to get as close as we were again before you passed. So Mm -hmm. you can never have everything in a single situation, but it's just uh, my one gripe with that part. I, I will say with that scene we were talking about is it's an excellent scene. I think the thing that occurred to me this time was this is like my sixth, seventh time watching this movie. So um, nobody thinks about Genki in this movie. They all do just wild shit in that room. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I guess the roommates just, they're, they're as little as Miles is. <laughs> <laughs> what, what I like about Genki here is that you can tell that because, and I don't mean this in a disparaging way, but because of the fact that Spider-Man Homecoming basically just took Genki and named him Ned yeah. and gave him to Peter, I think, and there actually is an interview from the uh, 
from one of the directors where the original version of the story actually had Genki more involved. Uh-huh. And they felt like they needed to step that back so that you didn't just have Ned 2.0. And I think that was probably the smart thing because I like that they kind of brush on the fact that Genki exists. And I feel like yeah. that's setting him up to be able to do more in the future. And they kind of already let you see that Genki knows about miles so it sets up all that possibility but yeah you're right every time i think about what happens in that room i'm like man they're just making messes left and right like he's coming through the window with like birds and pigeons (laughs) and like ripping up comic book pages and making a mess all over and it's just the movie implies those are genki's comics so miles just kind of (laughs) dick Uh, yeah also just while we're on the the thing of like weird things that didn't quite add up even though they're just clearly for comedic effect yeah uh whenever they're introducing peter b parker yeah and uh he mentions that he made some uh like you know rough money decisions he goes do not invest in a (laughs) a spot a spotty themed restaurant how would that even work because wouldn't that immediately tell somebody that you're peter parker right well that's the thing with spider-man is you almost wonder like can spider-man just create llc's as spider-man spider-man i hope so like uh, spider-man gets given its his own separate social security number and everything needed you have to imagine that if um if if peter's been peter b parker has been spider-man for 22 years like they just give him what he needs you want to you want to you want to invest in this restaurant fine here you go sure we'll, we'll call it the spider men's and you can be in times square for a week <laughs> <laughs> although i i i call bullshit that a spider-man themed restaurant in a would world, not work yeah especially in a world where spider-man exists that absolutely would be that would be like gordon ramsay restaurant level busy absolutely there's no chance that would fail you kidding me? I would go there just on the off chance Spider Man came in for a hamburger. <laughs> like, yeah, no, me too. You would be see like, me there all the happened. time. He's here. Yeah. Oh my god! <laughs> and it could be a single restaurant in New York that's like kind of expensive too, where it's like it's very cut off. It's like, oh yeah, it's. Just, I don't know. You could also just do it big and crazy, but if, it would be cool to keep it at least, if nothing else, multiple chains, but only in New in York. New York, yeah. Because yeah. you could. The thing is, you could do a $50 cheeseburger and be like every once in a while Spider-Man drops in and I would I think at least once a month I would go for a cheeseburger and spend on the, the off chance like $50 just chance. to see yeah could you imagine you're just eating your cheeseburger and fucking just spider webs fly through the front door uh, definitely <laughs> because we see him love cheeseburgers so it's like yeah. wouldn't he visit his own restaurant all the time man I can't watch that scene of him eating anymore because they turned the thing of him stuffing his fingers into a mouth his mouth into like a sex meme on twitter i did not see that <laughs> you've never seen that oh no man. they'll have these i might have to cut this because it's gross but they'll have these like oh when she hasn't showered for three days and you finger <laughs> her and then it's the picture of just peter b parker with his <laughs> fingers stuffed in his mouth oh boy <laughs> it ruined that scene for me that is that's rough <laughs> it's funny well, when i was watching it this time because this is also like my sixth or seventh watch yeah um i was watching it and i was like you know it's very ballsy of them to even animate that because it's so easy to mess that up to where it doesn't look right no yeah exactly but it looks perfect 
So a, a couple things that we've kind of we haven't gotten there yet, but yeah, as we get into the super collider, because that's a yes. big that's where everything starts to happen. I noticed this about like a time or two ago that I was watching it, um, and I noticed because of that. I continue to kind of pay attention this time watching it and see if there's anything else that stood out. And a couple things are interesting here. Um, whenever we see Miles return to check on the spider and then go in to see all the stuff happening with our Peter Parker and his world, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, and when Peter comes and swings by and saves them and then pulls them up and then he that you see that red and blue spider sense from Peter, and then you see the spider sense from um, Miles. And the first couple of times I watched it, I don't know why I didn't think anything of it, but then, like like I said, a time or two ago, I noticed that the colors were purple and green, which are the Prowler's colors. Mm. Yeah, and I, I thought, that's really interesting. Like, his spider sense little thing pulls from his uncle, which we know his uncle is, like, very important to him so it's not the craziest thing no but then you keep going and you know it's awesome and i love it in this movie of the way that they incorporate things into music like we have prowlers i won't say his theme but you have like you have like his call which like whenever he's around you just hear this droning Whoa! yeah the inception call yeah it's it's great it's like a it's like a crazy screeching horn yeah um but Terrible. you know you have that worked into all the prowler scenes because it's like his thing and it's it's what brings him in but then when we get to that scene with what's up danger mm-hmm. and we're going through the beginning of what's up danger is that horn at the beginning but it sounds mildly different like it's swung from being like ominous to almost being like hey it's a challenge but i'm about to go overcome it it's very interesting how they pull those things around but i thought it was cool that they also worked that into specifically Miles's theme for the movie, which becomes What's Up Danger. And mm-hmm. I love little things like that because it's like, this clearly could have just been a kid's movie. From a, or what I should mean by that is that this clearly could have just been one of those movies that is made for kids and adults but doesn't have to go too deep. But they did a lot of things that are clearly on purpose here. That's why I kind of want to watch with commentary and see if they discuss what they were thinking whenever they chose those type of things, because I love seeing that, but I'm almost wondering, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think of how it goes. Cause I know that Aaron and definitely in the long run, what ends up happening to Aaron shapes miles. And I think that makes sense to bring that back in, but I just wonder why, you know, is that just something, I don't know. It's like clearly, you know, that spiders being Spider-Man, Peter Parker is being red and blue makes sense because that's his Spider-Man colors. But Miles doesn't have any kind of colors to attach to just yet. And in the long run, even then, Miles colors end up always being black and red. Yeah, which is fair. I don't know. I think the thing I would bring back about the Prowler theme is I love that in um, Aunt May's house after they've got the goober and they're getting ready to go you can start to hear the prowler theme like slowly come up in the background as they're starting to realize that miles was followed i Mm -hmm. thought that was awesome and that the first time i noticed it was this watch where i'm like oh yeah they use it all over the place up until aaron's death and you know what's real interesting here and it's a it's a oh my god what a scene prowler up on the rooftop holding out miles but still with the mask and then he pulls the mask up and realizes it's miles and kind of like freezes yep Ooh. 
everything about that the way it's kind of framed to where like you see him holding miles and then behind in the background you see that towering refrigerator with a face that's fisk <laughs> <laughs> and you know, you have that little you know what are you hesitating for kind of little moment before he ends up getting shot but I, everything about that like the way that he kind of like slowly pulls down miles's mask and like starts to back up and like put his hands up it was one of those things where you see aaron as the beginning of the movie as like this real cool guy and like you don't think anything bad of him but then as you start to realize he's the prowler and you're like wait a minute so he's just like gets told to kill somebody and he's just gonna go do it (laughs) (laughs) so it makes you like it kind of dehumanizes him in some ways before it comes back around it's like well even if he's gone in a lot of ways the one thing he for sure is not going to do is hurt you know his his little nephew yeah I, I, i like that scene a lot it's really really strong and of course it leads to the scene of him dying and coming back into that idea of like spider-man always has to have like the familial trauma that somewhat springboards you in yeah i i don't know i think the only i guess critique i have of aaron that scene is i just felt like why didn't he just drop miles off the roof you know hmm because that to me like you just you you fake punch him in the face and you drop him but i don't know that that whole scene is awesome just because it really shows you who aaron is well yeah and that's what i mean like even if it's not logical the thing that's weird about that is like when you're watching it you can be logical because you're like well you know like this is crazy and it sets up some good stuff but if i were in his shoes this is what i would have done but at the moment where you're actually faced with finding out the person that you were about to kill and were basically harming <laughs> is yeah. your nephew that you love and who you know looks up to you ah, that's a big difference you know what i mean no definitely i mean i'm not i'm not saying like it was just one of those things i'm watching it and like i like we said multiple times I was multiple watches in where i'm like he should have just dropped him you know but you're right is nobody's gonna react logically to that situation you know because you're in shock right like you have that moment and i get it i mean regardless of i don't think you have to actually dig in to be like what was what was he thinking just backing up setting him down and going but at the same time i mean i i don't know you you assume that he knew how risky of a move he was doing but maybe he wasn't even thinking about that because he was so caught up in what was going on no but i like i like aaron as like I guess technically it's what he was. He always is in the story. He's kind of like Miles. Excuse me. He's Miles' foil. Yes. So he pulls different things out of Miles than the rest of the cast tends to. And I think that what I mentioned earlier, there's always that familial loss that has to happen. And it's always in these Spider-Man stories, it always happens realistically after the spider bite so it's like you already start getting your powers but you're not very familiar with them yet and then that happens and you know, this is what all of those end up being in the long run so it's it, it works because i think it leads you to having miles have his what's up danger moment because he had the aaron loss and his father's talk like back to back and it just gave him that confidence that you talked about that he's lacking when he's out of his element and suddenly he has that and it's like even with the loss and even with everything else going on he has that moment where he comes back and it's like you know 
this is me. I got to do this. I got to do this my way. Got to come back and just really push. You know, I, I like that. I, I thought that was a cool way to kind of switch up, but also still stay true to what you expect from a Spider-Man story. Right. Absolutely. They they really do do. Huh. <laughs> they really do well to hit the same beats uh, that you need for a Spider-Man story without making it feel generic. You know, it's not, you know, he didn't let Uncle Aaron get killed by a grocery store robber, which I appreciate. You know, I like that they're they're giving you the tropes, but doing them their own way. Well, and I think it's also like circular, right? I think it makes more sense that it solidifies Fisk as even more of the bad guy, which we saw him literally punch down on Peter Parker and break his back and kill him. Uh, I mean, he was already weakened, but still. Um, You see all that go down, and then you also see him end up shooting Aaron at that moment of hesitation. So I think it does a lot to solidify him as the bad guy, but I also think it makes it more of a circular thing of like the big bad guy is the one responsible for this push forward. So then the end of the movie comes a little bit better full circle, which partially because of what this movie is aiming for. Whereas like the first Sam Raimi Spider-Man and really even amazing Spider-Man that kind of brushes up across that same idea of like going for vengeance it feels disconnected in a sense to the rest of the story other than setting it up for the fact of vengeance should not be the fuel for Spider-Man. But this movie just completely skirts around that because it's not like a feeling of vengeance, but it's more of a feeling of justice. Yeah. It's like, you know, Fisk is going to get what he has coming to him, but not necessarily in the like, I'm going to track you down and kill you (laughs) kind of vibe that the other two movies have going torturing people like andrew garfield's peter parker is in spider-man amazing spider-man one you know yeah sure um while we're talking about things this movie kind of does i think a little differently and at least in i appreciate the way that it chooses to handle it is specifically how it handles the awkwardness of like being a teen going through the initial changes of becoming spider-man but also becoming an adult like we talked about earlier but the way that this movie actually approaches that from like a visual and audio standpoint altogether and i guess a presentation standpoint uh there's one scene that i just love where he's talking and you hear like his inner voice being loud and he's like why am i talking like why is my inner voice so loud then he's walking through and has the scene with um gwen and then when he's leaving he's having like that very teenage moment of like trying to self-assure himself even though he knows everyone saw it he's like no one knows no one knows we're good and then he keeps walking and so it's like everyone knows (laughs) and he's just walking through the hallway and you have all of these random words being kind of slapped up i feel like it really touches on the chaos of what being a teenager is like in a way that the other two movies in an effort to stay more realistic didn't really tap into definitely i like um I like when he's talking to Gwen. He's like, it's just just puberty. And she's like, I don't think you know what puberty is. Speaking of that, one of my favorite parts of this whole movie, as dumb as it is, is whenever he's putting his pants on the morning after the spider bite and yeah. Genki's sitting there and he goes to pull him up. He's like, wait a minute. He's like, weird. My pants shrunk. And then he goes, down, he goes I think I hit puberty. <laughs> yeah. And you just see Genki having that like, kind of like, okay. Yeah, that whole puberty scene is honestly one of the funnier scenes in the movie. 
it feels like and this is something I feel like all the rest of them were missing. Not saying that they had to have them, but it feels like those high school comedy movies that like you always end up watching as a kid and you're like, yeah, that's what it's like to be a teenager. That's how I feel. <laughs> but it, I, but in like the comedic way where it's like it's something clearly going on that would never happen, which is his hand, hand getting stuck to a girl's hair because he has spider powers. But it reminds you of like the new guy whenever he gets a boner and then the woman ends up grabbing his dick and breaking his dick. It just feels like that kind of moment, which is like these larger than life things that kind of tap into the fact that in high school, you overblow everything way more than serious than it actually could have been. (laughs) It's like the ultimate pushing of that. So I like that this movie kind of had that weird, like, Oh, we're going to be a quick teen comedy. Like you're watching not another teen movie for a second. (laughs) (laughs) Not another teen Spider-Man. (laughs) <laughs> that'd actually be a pretty good parody I, I would watch that if if into the spider-verse 2 was just a uh, like an american pie remake <laughs> hey, oh man at spider-man camp oh i stuck a web Lord. shooter <laughs> this one time at tgi spideys also we didn't talk about the name tgi spideys <laughs> yeah it's good like i said it wouldn't have failed wouldn't have failed there's no way um no, unless he was serving actual spiders which at that point borderline cannibalism right oh like yeah he's a spider yeah that's true okay at least genetically speaking peter b parker <laughs> is a creep i understand <laughs> you know he's talking about having kids uh peter b parker he's saying yeah. that he didn't want to have kids with mary jane i um, every time i watch this movie i'm like but what like because he's genetically different, what does his kid come out with the powers? Does his kid even come out a human? Like, is he like, only human because he was already in a human shell, or does his kid come out part spider? I think his kid comes out part Spider-Man. I'm, I'm curious. I don't know. It's like, I don't know. That's going to take us on a whole tangent, but it's almost <laughs> like uh, Mary Jane is into, like, a form of bestiality. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess she's not into it because well, I don't know. She's having that, sex with a spider. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's like ratatouille fun for spiders. Oh my god! <laughs> There's a spider pulling his hair. Could you imagine? <laughs> like the spider was just his brain was an actual spider just controlling his body. That is a movie I would watch. It's like Penny Parker except Peter Parker's body is the robot. <laughs> It's not even a robot. Like, do you see the spider climb into his ear? Oh. <laughs> I've got Ugh. spider powers. I am hungry for flies. Where are uh, the flies? That is terrible. Good lord. Um, <laughs> so can we talk about how dope the other Spider-Men are and how Spider-Man yeah. are is the best Spider-Man in the movie? Oh, bold words, but I'm not going to say you're wrong because <laughs> I absolutely love that they got... Um, Nicholas, Nicholas Cage, Cage to voice him. It's in, perfect. It's an inspired casting choice. <laughs> and every line that comes out of Spider Noir's mouth is gold. Oh, it's incredible. Just absolutely gold. I like when he's beating up people and he's using the old timey language. I can't think of exactly <laughs> what the quote is, but he punches someone and he's like, ah, oh, the beach in the barrels, kids. It's like, <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um, the line yeah, that the- everyone talks about, the. Uh, Sometimes I light matches and let them burn down to the fingers just to feel so something. Feel. <laughs> but then I love that in that example, the mask goes out and he just goes, "Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh shit. yeah." 
oh man even the little like when they're going through and they're like uh, when they introduce him and he's like hey fellas and then you have Miles being like is he in black and white and then he hits him with the uh, or Peter B. Parker's like where's that wind coming from we're in a basement <laughs> yeah they have a lot <laughs> wherever of I go the wind follows yeah. and the wind smells like rain <laughs> <laughs> I like that they have like almost fourth wall breaking comments in the movie like those and then um when uh spider ham leaves he's like and that's all folks and then you just hear peter be like can he legally say that (laughs) i love that line (laughs) oh man every bit of the uh, i you know they all end up acting as every bit of what you'd need. Cause I mean, like even spider ham has his moments to where he gets to be like very genuine and sincere about what's going on. Mm-hmm. And so does spider noir. So it's like, it's as great as all their dumb one liners are. I mean, even the thing of like Spider-Man noir looking at the Rubik's cube <laughs> and being like, this is purple. And he, <laughs> he says, spider ham's like, no, and he's like blue. No. Cause everything he sees is just black and white. But, as much as those dumb little gags are, I like that every character gets to have that. And I also like that it's right before the scene we talked about with Jefferson, where it's like, we end up having this heart to heart with pretty much every mainline cast character that's still around with Miles in his room. And then you cap it all off with the person he probably needed to hear it from the most being his dad. Mm-hmm. Um, that was just great because I do think it helps to feel like, of course, they're more experienced and the entire movie would have ended whenever Prowler broke into Aunt Mays if it would have just been essentially Miles at Aunt Mays for however reason they wrote up that he found it. Yeah. <laughs> so they're there because they're just kind of like the experienced muscle. But I'm glad that outside of that, they get to be more than just fun. Like, you know, because it's great that they're fun and it adds a charm to this movie that I think the other ones are sorely missing. I think in watching this one, it reminds you that Spider-Man in the right context can be very serious and also very funny in a way that feels right. But the movies themselves, I think, have a hard time being that funny because definitely the pre-marvel cinematic universe ones they it's i like it in a sense but they take themselves very seriously they do yeah and i think that's what makes spider-man 3 so weird because when you're seeing him doing that little emo walk down the street (laughs) it feels like the movie as it takes itself so seriously is not trying to be funny whereas if you did that exact same scene but throughout the trilogy you had set it up that there's the ability to have that kind of goofy lightheartedness then that scene reads completely differently yeah. just like it did in this movie they did the exact same thing basically well, but the weird under humor about the sam raimi movie is like sam raimi you get this if you watch his other movies he's very funny and that movie's yeah. not funny <laughs> at all like not in the way that you would think a spider-man movie is where this one is this is one of the few movies where every time i watch it there are scenes that have me like you know the borderline of tears where you're not crying but then suddenly you're you'll get the like (laughs) you know what i mean and like you (laughs) get the little tear ups like you get that a lot in this movie but then you get genuine like laughter where you're like holy shit that was incredible which it's, Mm -hmm. it's no movie other than maybe end of the tour gets me like that where every time I feel the same emotions when Peter Parker dies. I was dead. I was very, very upset. Like that whole scene with people realizing, like, I think almost the hero we took for granted was like, Oh shit. He's just a child. Mm -hmm. He's 26. So he's not really a child, but you know what I mean by that? He's younger than I am. 
right now. I mean, me. not younger than I was when the movie came out, but you know. Yeah, he's. I mean, he's technically a year older than me. So, but frozen in time at twenty six, I guess. Oof. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you're you're right. I like that. I feel like all the other Spider-Man movies do have their emotional anchors and like you can feel very similar about certain parts of them every time that you watch them. But you're right in that. I feel like this movie is singularly unique in that all the parts that are funny are always equally as funny to me. Mm-hmm. All the parts that are very genuine and sincere are equally as genuine and sincere. And they all feel, I think if I had to say anything, this movie does such a good do- job with dialogue where I feel like every bit of dialogue throughout the entire movie and the choice of voice actors, interestingly enough, was all strong towards building this to feel right. And, you know, good dialogue, as they always say, is supposed to be written to where real dialogue, like we're having right now, mm-hmm. is filled with errors and ums and buts and your need to kind of float from one thought to the next as you're doing it in real time. But what's great about dialogue that's written when it's done really well, it feels like it's natural conversation moving through, even though it would never be that concise or tight. And that's a great thing. I feel like every bit of this movie, when you have, if you just isolate that scene, it feels right within itself. It feels like, Oh yeah, this could totally just be me looking into someone else's world and feeling that. Whereas I think some of the Sam Raimi movies, because they're kind of steeped in that over seriousness and almost like trying to pull from like the sixties era Ditka Spider-Man. It's got this thing where a lot of the dialogue ends up coming off in a way where you overcome it and you get used to the fact that this is the way that this is, but you have to adjust to it for a little bit first. It doesn't feel natural. It feels like you're watching a drama. Yes. Absolutely. And uh, that's also true to some extent to uh, even the ones from Mark Webb and a little bit, but I feel like the, the Raimi series is the worst in that regard. Um, and then the other ones have gotten better about making the dialogue and everything feel natural. Like you're just peeking into a real world mm-hmm. uh, that's not so stylized, but this movie does a great job of making everything feel natural and real and relatable in a way that, I won't say few movies do because I don't really think that's accurate. I just I don't know why I didn't expect it. No, the I, first time coming into it. I don't know. I think for how funny this character of Spider Man is, I feel like the movies forget that. Sure. And then this one doesn't, which is really excellent. Everything is funny. Well, it's like we talked about. One of the big complaints about Peter Parker from the Raimi trilogy is that he didn't ever feel like he was quippy enough. No. Like he he had lines. Then you had the Mark Webb ones where he's quippy. He's honestly very quippy, but he's too cool. to so the, the quips feel weird because like what makes Spider-Man interesting is that he's supposed to kind of be like an everyman. And then suddenly when he puts on the suit, it's like almost an alter ego to an extent. It's like, you know, he lets more of that confidence poke through because he needs it in those moments. Yeah. So it's cool to see that here to an extent as well. But also just seeing Miles be a kid and have fun like that infamous scene that we kind of opened the podcast with of him and his uncle talking about the put your hand on the shoulder of the girl and say hey you know that's a that's just like a touching fun moment that feels just like oh this is not about anything to do with superheroes or anything this is just about 
being a person and yeah. having a good time and what would naturally happen if happen if you were talking to someone about that you know you would joke and have fun at the expense of the person messing with you about it so we've talked about all that but i guess you know with everything that happens in the middle it's a lot of just character building yeah. uh, one of the things that most people know by now but i do really love from just a direction standpoint is that anytime that we see miles operating as uh, spider-man he's animated on the twos um so or really i guess the way it is anyway he's animated at half speed in comparison to everyone else so yeah. that he feels like he's not as smooth he feels janky and less confident and then you see peter b parker swinging like a pro and as you're going through all those scenes building up to him first learning and carrying the computer with <laughs> spider-man and doing the swing that's when suddenly in those moments he's in rhythm yeah. and he's back to animated those are great little visual touches that go through telling you something without telling you something exactly. it's like when you see it you feel it even though you don't necessarily know why mm-hmm. absolutely uh no i'm glad we moved on to that scene because it has one of i think the better lines of this of just incidental dialogue in the movie i guess that's the right way to say it. they're trying to escape and miles has the computer and the monitor <laughs> And Peter just runs up. He goes, good news. Don't need the monitor. <laughs> Throws it away. <laughs> yeah. Now that scene is all sorts of funny. Um, even the, where he comes back and his plan is up coming to fruition where he's like, steal a bagel. And he steals the bagel. And then I don't know why it makes me laugh so hard, but whenever they're escaping and running out of the door and just through the little crack, uh, oh, it's not that you see him go through, but as they bust out with their briefcases that suddenly turn into guns, also hilarious. <laughs> yeah, that so much about that scene reminds me, alone from just the absolutely fantastic animation that Sony Animation Studios do. The the style of that scene reminds me so much of them and the way that they typically do with like their humor. It makes me think of the Cloudy with a Chance of Meatball series, which I also love so much, when they just suddenly flip their own briefcases up to guns, but. When he throws the bagel back and it hits the doctor on the head and it says bagel on the screen. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Um, I Those little visual flares. When they pull out the briefcases and you hear just one one line of dialogue from a woman who's there shooting at them where he goes, he stole a bagel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> where it's almost like they're not mad about anything other than that he stole a bagel. Yeah, they just want the bagel back. <laughs> Um, but yeah, every bit of that goes towards building towards a great thing too. And I think it puts a cool thing of, I, I think it's kind of awesome being able to see in a movie. Cause we've not really seen this in the past, getting to see Spider-Man be a teacher. And I also love the little underlying, everyone has their own little plot points they lead into, right? Like you have Gwen who you kind of see attaching to miles because she doesn't have Peter in her world anymore. Mm-hmm. And they're closer in age, so it's like more of a sensible thing. Then you have Peter B. Parker, who has this thing where it's all about Mary Jane, but why is he not with MJ? Well, because she didn't want kids, and he don't think he, he doesn't think he's ready for that commitment. But then in the long run, whenever they're doing that scene, I love that you kind of see that little twinkle written into the character of like they're swinging together and he thinks it's really cool he's like this is crazy i'm normally having to do this alone i you know i'm the i'm the middle-aged guy who can still do it pretty well and you're my little pal and it's like he doesn't realize in that moment that he's kind of talking about what having a kid is about absolutely i like that you get some character building with him too by the end on the kids thing where another one of the lines i really love of just 
wow, I'm so proud of you. You did so great. Do I want kids? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, see, it's like they push towards it because I think he, I think him being with Miles makes him think like, man, you're kind of what having a kid would be like in the long run. Mm-hmm. Not even like in a disparaging way. It's the truth. I mean, he's a kid and he's... <laughs> he's literally a child. Yeah, he's building up to everything else coming up. But um, yeah, that's a really good scene. And then we come to the end we all we've we talked about it we kind of skirted around it but really the important thing left to talk about is the what's up danger scene which is probably one of the best scenes if not the best scene that i have probably ever seen on screen absolutely the just glass coming with them and the the song oh dude every bit of it like even the stylistic thing that they put in the trailer where he's standing in the uh, in the subway and you see the subway whip by him and it flashes for a second of that comic book panel frame but you mm-hmm. just see his coat whipping while he's got his spider-man thing on while that music's kind of pumping and building toward it and you see him going up towards the top and that little pause as the music kind of comes to a rest and is in that little ethereal space and then he jumps and it just crashes back down um this the style of that is so crazy i agree uh, every bit of it visually is is intense and you feel like you're right there with miles as he's going through and i even like that they chose to show that when he jumps off the glass even though he's confident now he still pulls some of the glass off with his fingers and toes like you know yeah absolutely but the the perspective they used in the framing for that shot where it's like you're looking down and seeing like a very exaggerated and like pulled in like very high perspective of the city kind of going down to where the buildings look taller than they have the entire movie. Yep. It, it really gives you a sense of scale on what miles is doing, you know? Yeah. And I've, I've always kind of viewed that as it's not even that the buildings are necessarily that tall so much as they represent what miles is about to overcome. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's like he's looking down into the abyss where you don't even really see the roads. It's like the buildings just kind of go into a point and then that's the end. It's like, it's just, this is it. And then even that frame of kind of seeing him, which they use on all the promotional art, like fall into the city, but he's just not. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. it's just a great scene and all across the board. And like I said, coming together when hitting with that theme that kind of builds up on everything lyrically and then even bringing in sounds like the horn from his uncle. It's just fantastic. Yeah. It's it's almost hard to talk about that scene because I feel like it's it's an experience. It's yeah. something that you mainly feel. You don't need to be able to word it. You just need to watch it and feel it. <laughs> Absolutely. There's no way to really define it because if you just say what it is it doesn't sound as impactful but like just, sure. just watching it is so good like because if we, if we wanted to sit here and describe the whole scene is miles pulls his mask on and jumps off a building and then swings over to help the, his friends but if you watch it it's it's very much like a transition from miles to spider-man you know yeah and, yeah yeah sure that's and it's much later in this movie. You know, like every Spider-Man movie has the, or at least every Spider-Man origin story has the now I'm Spider-Man moment. Yeah. And his comes very late in the movie. And I like that because I think it builds and earns that in a very different way than the rest of them do. Yeah. Uh, And back on our Spider-Man, Amazing Spider-Man episode, I said I did like the way that they chose to do that. I become Spider-Man moment. But this one's leaps and bounds even better than that one. Oh, for sure. Well, and I think the thing with this is 
nobody's trying to push him to be spider-man either you know they all want him to be to be who he is but nobody's trying to force him and i think that's a a thing with the rest of the movies is because there's no other spider-man to do what needs to be done the movies Mm. have to force peter parker to become spider-man a lot well there's an external pressure yeah Yeah. exactly it's like the lizard is gonna kill everyone if you don't get good at this or doc ock or whoever green goblin whereas in this one it's like nah man we'll take care of it and one of us is i mean unless you want to save one of our lives but that's the outstanding pressure there's no like the world is going to die if you don't become spider-man figure it out and that's what i like Mm -hmm. everyone else in this movie is like if we have to sacrifice because you're not ready that's fine we'd rather protect you because we got this you know and i think that's why they can let it up until the last 20 minutes they can let it be just miles not being confident and miles not really understanding and letting the story kind of happen around him where miles is almost an npc for a lot of the movies that we just follow where the real heroes are quote the quote-unquote real heroes are like peter b parker and all the other spider-men and then at towards the end you finally get him breaking out and like now i have to take over but i'm i'm more discernibly ready than most of the other spider-men are yeah i i mean i think that that was a good build towards too like you said when you don't have that bigger external pressure i mean it's still the pressure of knowing that someone's going to stay behind and end up dying as a result so it's not like there's no stakes like you mentioned uh it's just it does feel like the spider-man act as a very interesting counterbalance to his parents or at least specifically jefferson uh, who's pushing down down on him and being like you know you've got to do this you got to be better and that's why i say that the moment when jefferson comes and talks to him i think is very important because it's like even jefferson relenting that hey you know do what you got to do and I'm, i know you'll be great at it and all of that coming together while the spider-man are there talking to him and being like you know hey it is what it is and like you know we want to give you the chance but you don't need to pretend to be something that you're not if you can't be it it's a, it's very different and it sets the movie up in a way that does allow i think that scene to be stronger because like you said it's him overcoming himself at that point it's not him having <clears throat> he is rising to meet the challenge but the challenge is more in his mind than it is like you said the that the whole city and thousands upon thousands of lives could be down if he doesn't suddenly break through so it feels more personal like it's more of a impersonal scale so we get to the end and the end is him coming back in and helping fisk and doing everything and being the big confident spider doing his thing um and coming back to the big through line of the movie and all spider-man movies essentially which is i won't say the big through line there's plenty of them but one of the big through lines that's said from the get-go is that you always stand back up no matter what you always Mm -hmm. keep going and we start the movie off knowing that the peter parker from our realm or from miles realm rather interesting that i keep projecting that miles world has to match mine but (laughs) but you know you see miles peter die and not be able to stand back up and then at the end we kind of see the movie come back with a basically the same thing we see fisk hammer fist down like a refridge falling on top of an old lady with a life alert and when it all comes together you just have that moment of you know it's you know when you're watching the movie it's not going to be this way but you have that moment like oh fisk is two for two <laughs> and then it comes back around to where 
that's not the case. It's like, you know, we, we get to see Miles do what the other one couldn't. Ne- not necessarily that's a big thing, but he gets to stand back up and kind of see this thing through to the end and be what he needed to be, and that's awesome. It's a really strong, great ending to this movie, and it ends up... Oh, you know what I didn't talk about? Mm. Just before I get too far away from it, I meant to, but um, the Becoming Spider-Man scene. Uh, most of the Spider-Man movies, and I think this one still ultimately has it, but a lot of the Spider-Man movies have that kind of like final swing of the movie where he's like swinging through the city yes. and being like, I'm Spider-Man, and this is what life is like as Spider-Man. I feel like the that swing for him, I kind of call it like the victory swing. Yeah. <laughs> But I think that scene for him kind of came before everything, uh, you know, before the ending. We talk about the movie mirroring a lot of stuff. I also thought it was really cool that one of the ways that he came back to everything is whenever he's doing the thing with Peter Parker, whenever he's knocked out and he's being dragged by the train, you see the movie come back to basically that same scene, that same framing, and you see him confidently swinging between these vehicles and popping over and doing everything he could in the first time. And I just, I love the kind of juxtaposition of that, like coming back around and being like, oh, I'm going to show you it all again, but now with the confidence and without the, the baggage. And the baggage in a lot of ways, I guess, was technically peter b parker knocked out in the beginning he was the metaphorical badge that, <laughs> that represented what miles was going through right so i did remember what i had to talk about before the we ended off if you want to go there please um so watching this again made me wonder what do you expect for a sequel because i know they're doing another one and i'm watching this movie i'm like oh yeah they really do tie this up in a bow to the point where it, I'm wondering how they can bring back other other Spider-Men or mm-hmm. why they would. You know, I guess yep. we do get that ending cutscene of Oscar Isaac's Spider-Man 2099, you know, having, I guess, a, a way for him to travel through dimensions. Is that Oscar Isaac voicing him? That's what the Amazon says on the side. Wow. So, which is cool. Yeah. I'm a big Oscar Isaac guy. I didn't know that, but that's cool. Yeah, the... I, I've I've wondered that too because like you said, I was always worried when early on, like when the movie first came out, and I saw it in theaters, and I absolutely loved it. I had that feeling of like I know that I love this, but I'm really worried this movie may not perform and may not get a sequel. Um, it's kind of what I was feeling as it was going on, and then before that end scene comes up, you have that flash while you're sitting there. I was in theater, and I was thinking, man, like for as great as this movie is, it kind of ties everything up in a great way to where yeah you can make another one but there's not there's not a clear setup and then you have that and i kept kind of looking and being like you know was there something in this movie and every time i watch it i don't catch it i'm like is there something in this movie that this 2099 thing is referencing back to i'm not sure like I, i i'm real curious to see do they move on and make another one in this style, but it's no longer about Miles? It's now we get to now we get to see the twenty ninety nine story. I would be blown away if it wasn't about Miles because I feel like the whole point is building him up. So if we open up to, um, into the Spider Verse two and it's not him, I think that would be a very big mistake. What I what I would honestly I've, i brought it up like i don't think there should be a sequel but i think what they'll end up doing is that spider-man will go and pick up 
a couple new versions of spider-man and then he'll probably grab peter b noir and miles and gwen you know and then there's something in 299 it'll be called spider-man into the spider-verse 2 and then in parentheses it'll have 099 on it you know Mm-hmm. See, I wonder that. It's like now that you've set this up and you want this to be a separate thing, you don't want to immediately go back to Peter as being your main person. That makes sense. Um, so it does make sense to pull in Miles. And, of course, he was perceived very well, though, sadly, even if this movie did well, uh, it's always bummed me out that this movie sold like not even remotely close to either of the two Marvel Spider-Man movies. <laughs> Yeah. It's like this movie still did like 500 million, which is really good. But you know, when you talk about a movie being, it may have done that well. I don't actually remember. I know that it's underperformed other Spider-Man by far. I think it overperformed to expectation, which is a good thing. That's why we're getting a sequel. But you know, when you see uh, far from home getting like 1.2 billion, it's hard to be like, well, why didn't this movie get the respect and viewership that it deserved? But um, I think that going towards Miguel, isn't that Spider-Man 2099's identity? Miguel so, O'Hara, yeah. something like that? Yeah, he's a um, former cop. I know that much. Was he a cop in that? Not in this, but I think in 2099. Oh, I'm saying like in the original 2099. I thought he was like a geneticist or something. I, I thought, thought wasn't he supposed to be? Maybe he was. I could be wrong. I could have sworn he was a cop, but I don't know a crazy amount about 2099. Yeah, 2099 i don't know a, much, a lot about either actually most of what i know about 2099 the little bit that i do came from playing um the Beanox spider-man game the shattered dimensions yes <clears throat> which was a surprisingly good game um but yeah i think going towards uh miguel i'm pretty sure it's the guy's name so but going towards spider-man 2099 you could pull him in and be that and you can still do this through Miles' perspective, but I have the feeling that he's going to pull them, like you said, to 2099, and that it won't necessarily be that they're limited to modern New York. Because one of the things that we talked about, too, and it's less important in movies, but if you can, it's always great to be able to move. And that's why we saw Spider-Man Far From Home take Spider-Man out of New York and go somewhere else. And if this game can move from current-day New York that we've seen and kind of experienced and move us to a... 2099 what is it Nueva York and that what they call it yeah exactly <laughs> um and that so yeah if you can pull us to that then you still keep us in New York so it feels on brand for Spider-Man but we get to see it in a whole new light and that would be cool but I don't know I mean it's it's really hard one of the things that I think Sony animation studios in general have had they've done well but like you know cloudy with a chance of meatballs one also wraps up into such a fine knot that i would have never anticipated a sequel nor was there even a teaser for one and then suddenly they made a sequel and it's not quite as good as the first but it's really good and i loved it but it's kind of that thing of where it's, it's almost like you just gotta be like well, we're, we're just gonna continue telling stories in this world even if they're not necessarily tied to this one the one thing i'm curious about how they move forward with is if if bringing them forward and running the machine again was going to destroy the world and cause a black hole inside of New York and basically just mess up all the dimensions, how do you do it again? Right. Exactly. It has to be 2099 and his tech have come and gotten them all, right? Exactly. But, That's what I mean. Like, I don't know otherwise how you move back. Well, I think moving nailed- everyone into 2099 where the tech exists to do this more stably makes a lot more sense mm-hmm. they, at they, least within the realm of what the movie's set up already definitely but even then they also have that stinger at the end of gwen talking to miles through the universe 
which if you take that as something that actually happened would imply that they can now travel universes because of their exposure so maybe that's all it is <laughs> maybe and it's just that you can't stay too long in an opposing universe <clears throat> yeah. or dimension whatever you want to call it um yeah that could work i always thought that that grin thing was also weird um and I've also wondered, like, is it just that now that they've connected, they have the ability to kind of use their spider senses to communicate across interdimensional things? Yeah, you'd have to think it's something along those lines. Then again, you know what's weird about that huh. is that, like, even though you can do that, everyone's timeline is so weird. So it's like a lot of the times I think when people think about multiverses, a lot of people tend to automatically assume that it's going to be like uh, basically the same time, but people don't really think about it that years would be counting differently because, Oh, I, I, I guess it's that this movie introduces it as though there's a future, like a dis a more distant future, a not so distant future with like Gwen, where she's like, it pushed me back a week. It knocked me in the back last week, literally. And then Peter B. Parker clearly being much older. It's kind of this setup where it's like things happen in different order, but is one really in the future or are these actually parallel timelines? Otherwise, how is one coming back in time? But I don't know. That's something that I'm curious if they if they're setting up for time in the same way as well. I mean, clearly other Spider-Verse stuff has set up for time to play into it where it doesn't matter, but do they introduce that here on purpose because they want time to be something that's here or are they just doing that so they can have whatever Spider-Man they want from whatever era? Yeah, definitely a fair point. Not really sure. Uh, that's always what we talked about it. Um, when we were talking about the butterfly effect in that anytime that you introduce time travel, you get into issues. Now time travel mixed with interdimensional travel who knows? <laughs> it's yeah. like, is it just as easy to kind of mess up or does it actually give you a little bit more verticality to kind of suspend disbelief because it's like, well, they're already traveling dimensions. Why does it matter if the dimensions are perfectly in sync? Yeah. But I guess, who do you think would be the big bad guy? You know, cause having such a smaller, more personal story here and having it to be where it's like, it's Fisk and yeah, it's ultimately about saving all of New York but the way they actually use Fisk is kind of just a roundabout thing to as a platform for um, him for Miles to grow and for everybody else to do their thing. How do they move forward? You know, can you have what I think is one of the most important things of this movie, which is that charm that comes from it feeling like it's a more personal story? Can you have that again? And or can you still tap into that while still telling a bigger story? And who's the new villain? If we're going to go twenty ninety nine. I mean, yeah, I, mean, I don't know anyone from them. Maybe Batman Beyond. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But I think honestly, if you wanted to tell a really personal story, I think Miles having to seek help from his friends because Craven the Hunter is coming after him and, you know, tearing up his life. That could be interesting. Yeah. You know, I don't know because that, that little teaser scene kind of implies that something is coming that's not quite happened it's like oh we're we still on schedule or whatever it's uh, it's weird it's looking at how things are going it's the, it's gonna be if, interesting to what see if it. the bad guy of the movie is spider-man 2099 dude that would be actually pretty sick yeah that'd be a cool way to again subvert expectation mm-hmm like you're going to assume that coming through it's like, oh, Spider-Man has to be the good guy. But, you know, that's also a cool way to pull back into the uh, Spider-Man comics because uh, what was it? The Spectacular Spider-Man. Uh, hold on. 
trying to was it spectacular spider-man the one where spider-man's not spider-man yeah yes that's spectacular i guess that's what i thought so if they do that again that, that or if they do that that'd be a way to tap into some of the comic stuff and be like oh we're gonna pull a fast one and you're gonna think this whole time that this is spotty doing something but really it's someone else who's taken over spotty's body or it's just a different dimension where spider-man didn't become a hero but instead became a villain or it's just that what spider-man needs and ends up destroying the other universes so they have to stop him but technically he's ah where guy. he's almost like the he's a he's a i guess guy. anti-hero is not necessarily the word but that's not far from it either well it's also one of those things where in his dimension he's a hero but he's a villain in the other dimensions because he's dooming them you know uh-huh so that that i could find would be pretty cool hmm? maybe all right well chris yes sir. it's great to just get to uh, watch this movie again yeah exactly <laughs> it's a good excuse we don't have i don't need here. many excuses to be honest i just no absolutely not it, this was one of those funny movies because i had seen it so many times i was like oh, i'm just gonna i'm just gonna knock out some side quests in cyberpunk have it on in the background and then it ended up being a situation where i'm just sitting watching it on my tv on my computer while everything while cyberpunk's just being paused in the background so yeah that's what i was saying i already know that i can't do that like you know there's some content that's easy to do i was watching impractical jokers while i was doing uh, some side gigs uh and not gigs or other i've been playing too much cyberpunk yeah. i was doing something <laughs> in destiny i was just doing some bounties that don't matter at all so i just had that on in the background and was laughing but like i know the moment that i put spider-verse on my brain just is like oh yeah watch that yeah and then once i'm starting to watch i just can't look away yeah it was for me it was like i've seen it so many times i thought i could get away with it and it's just now nah, you're gonna watch spider-verse <laughs> <laughs> all right man well thanks for joining us uh everybody thanks for joining us as well you can come in and um watch us come back to normal form next week with blake and we're going to be doing 12 angry men which we teased the end of last episode yeah. uh but that's going to end up being the next week uh that does mean that the way that this happened that we're going to have a week off just because of holidays doesn't really matter but you, but <laughs> thanks for joining us for this little kind of extra episode and actually i'm going to say if we ever have moments where we know that blake or something needs to be out that might be where we start pulling in more animated movies and discussing those absolutely <laughs> get ready to watch princess mononoke because i want to watch it again so bad I've never seen it, so that works. Not fucking doing it with Blake. <laughs> Blake, we uh, yeah, love you. it was stupid. Grow it up. was stupid. Ah, <laughs> uh, Blake, we tease, buddy, because they're cartoons, dickhead. Yeah, just see, kidding, yeah, but but I can't I can't say something about Halloween without being just yeah right. reamed. <laughs> and you can't say something about the Belko experiment. Oh. So here but, we go. This so, know, this show comes full circle. Whatever the grappling hooks, totally okay. Little little girl at the, in the middle of the night from picks up a grappling hook and that's fine. But an animated <laughs> dragon, too much for Blake. Jesus. Yep. Okay, guys, you can join well, us next Blake. week, like I mentioned. But thanks for joining us here. Uh, as always, you can go and find us on social media. You can find us on the Midweek Matinee one on Twitter at Matinee underscore Midweek. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Midweek Matinee. You can find Chris Figs here on Twitter at FIGZ21K, uh, where we he will sometimes share some stuff we're doing either with this show or with our gaming podcast that he joins me on. Triangle Squared presents a spoiler cast or whatever. Spoiler, spoiler chats. There we go. Spoiler I should cash. know my own show's name. <laughs> uh, 
but you can find those we're going to be doing near automata soon so if you like gaming and are interested in that game go check that out but you can also find me and my buddy saul every monday on triangle square to playstation podcast as well uh and from there i think we just need to round off the show by thanking our supporters for this show and for all of the things we do over here at nartech which is using patreon we have a number of great patrons and we love you guys all so much so if you want to support the show with more than just your time head over to patreon.com slash nartech and consider giving as little as a dollar per month helps us a lot helps keep up the show uh without you know that way we don't have to pay out of pocket for hosting fees on all this stuff and if we need microphones or anything we can get those things thankfully so head over there and we also give shout outs to every single one of our patrons right now because we can afford to do it if we ever get lucky enough to have hundreds and hundreds of people we may have to rethink that category <laughs> but <laughs> for now we want to end the show by thanking our patrons and chris you're going to give me a second because i didn't pull it up every time with this guy hey i did it right last time <laughs> fair but it's been so long <laughs> all right a thanks to our patrons kyle G- grim josh Jarrell, matthew green my name is dan luke bartolomeo sean santa root funk turkey danny villiobos Corey hickerson blake popes kevin bacon bits eric McAllister, shadowist steven salazar the stonard rich constantly kenny solitary red chris figs zachary sawyer landis Rude Days 93, Brian, Donovan Williams, William Digital Spooker, Derek Porter, Josh Ayers, Joshua Lago, Sean One Neo, Tyler Powers, El Chabib, Jason Clendenning, and Richard Schaefer. Thank you guys so much. Hello, Looker, and congratulations. You have discovered the secret message. Midweek Matinee is produced and edited by Christopher Figueroa. Music is by Joshua Lago. Thank you for your support and for enjoying all these movies with us. And lastly, please send your iTunes reviews to Old Pink, Care of the Funny Farm.